Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, before we start, uh, you know, we're, we, we're in the, the Parshas of uh, talking about the, our holy fathers and mothers, and I just want to say it's, a, it's just a, a privilege to be able to, to learn about them, to, to return to them, and to, um, just, to, j- just to experience that, that extra feeling of closeness that comes with, with Torah study and, and connecting with, with, um, with really our, just our fathers and mothers. So anyway... With that in mind, um, I, I heard a couple of stories over Shabbos, and just they—I I just like them, so I'm going to tell you. <laughs> um, uh, we heard them from the people that they happened to. So, so here's here's one. Just again, it just—I'm always fascinated by examples of what we call hashkacha uh, pratis, which means um, divine providence. How how God God is guiding the world. Um, just fascinated with that subject. So, um, you know, someone someone said to me that 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 they were they, they I guess they this is someone who's been learning for I guess decades, but somehow through some connection he wandered into one of my talks and um, uh, he came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, you said something which which really struck me, which was that. Um, he said, I guess I've heard it before, but somehow I never heard it exactly the way you had said it, or it didn't hit me until the way you had said it, or, or whatever it is, just the point, it's not my point, it's Judaism, which is that God arranges and creates every single person's set of circumstances and customizes every single person's circumstances in their life for them. So you're living a customized life. And somehow that that was... That was, that was somehow a new concept to him, and this is someone who's been studying Torah for probably two or three decades. And it, it, that struck me because I realized that how could that be that that was a new thought to him, when that's such an that's such an important basic idea, and maybe that's a new point to a lot of people, that from the time that they wake up, you know, I, I always if you want a, a visualization for it, I always think of a kaleidoscope. You know, when you, you look through the kaleidoscope and you turn it, and then the picture keeps on changing, you know? So this is us in our life. Our, the, the circumstances of our life are constantly changing around us. But it's not a big, through random events. Each, each situation that we're put into, whether it's the amount of traffic that morning, or who we see in the supermarket, or who we don't see in the supermarket, by the way, um, how long the line is at the supermarket and, and, and what opportunities there are while we're just standing on line or, or, and then certainly the more significant encounters that we have. Each one of these things are, are customized and designed just for us by God. So, so we should just, we should understand that. Um, and and uh, I was discussing this with someone and he said that, that the Western world, meaning to say that sort of like the secular academic um, counterweight to, to these type of ideas, wants to very strongly uproot that idea. Because there's, if you can uproot that idea, then basically what you're doing is, is saying that you don't have a personal relationship with God. You see, a lot of people will accept the idea that there's a God, because if you want to be intellectually honest, 
you have a lot of trouble explaining how there is a world at all. How is there a world at all? It really, and then when you think about everything that science is telling you, and I'm saying in a positive way because God who created the world also created science. There is no, there is no fight between religion and science. Either you don't understand the religion properly or you don't understand the science properly. Right? That's what the Rambam says, right? But, but we say the Torah is from God and maybe you're not just understanding the psukim properly, the verses properly. Remember, all of Breshis, all of the story of creation, and we're talking about what many of our commentators, our most esteemed commentators, our most Torah true commentators, are talking about a billions and billions and billions of year old process, are condensed into something like a few dozen verses. So how, how is it possible that Remember, the Torah is not a science textbook. The Torah is not a history textbook. It includes smatterings of both, but it doesn't claim to be the last word in science, and it doesn't claim to be the last word in history. What it is, is it's a presentation of teachings. Torah means a teaching. It's a presentation of teachings to tell you how to get through this world, how to get through life, right? And what, what, God, what God wants from us, right? Remember, Reb Shlomo says, that what, 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 what is the Ten Commandments? What, are the, what is the Torah itself? It's, it's God's dreams for us. And he said that when you're, when you're keeping the Torah, you're, you're praying God's prayers and you're dreaming God's dreams. That's, a, that's, an, amazing, that's an amazing presentation. But, but, but in other words, what I'm trying to say is, is that You've got so much condensed in these initial verses of the Torah, which are addressing, you know, entire libraries worth, worth of science books. So anyone who wants to hold this simple reading of those verses to account and say, well, that doesn't include, that doesn't include this phenomenon, which was just discovered in some laboratory in CERN, right? Or whatever it is. And by the way, we are finding more and more that the simple reading of the verses do contain what's being discovered in the laboratories of the super colliders in, in Europe and things like that. But that aside, anyone who um, wants to give such a simple reading in this way is really not understanding what the Torah is actually saying. Because in order to see these type of insights into the Torah, you have to go very deeply into the Torah. You have to go into the Kabbalah itself. You have to go into Hasidus. You have to go into all sorts of very deep ways of understanding these passages. But it's all there. It is all there. But, but one has to be respectful of the fact that in a few dozen verses, billions and billions and libraries and libraries where the books are being condensed. Okay. So, so let's keep on going. So, so, so anyone, I believe, in my opinion, who is intellectually honest, has to account for the fact that where did the world come from? And, and how is it possible that even though we see a lot of chaos, like in Syria, there's all sorts of, this army is fighting that army, and this militia is fighting that militia, and it seems like total chaos. But if you look objectively at the structure of the universe, and I'm talking about from all the trillions of planets down to the subatomic level, what you see, including DNA and all, all sorts of things like this, 
what you see is an astonishing amount of order and stability. Again, human relations are very frenetic and, and chaotic, but the structure of the universe of the universe itself is quite quite stable, quite stable. So what becomes interesting is, you see, and 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 also just just to just to just mention it. Um, this field, I love the I love the name of it, inflationary cosmology, right? It doesn't sound beautiful, right? That's the that's the notion of the early moments of the universe, what we call the Big Bang. But remember, the Torah was talking about its own version of the Big Bang, which correlates thematically with the Big Bang exactly thousands of years ago, where God took one physical point of existence, which was the foundation stone of the base of Migdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, and then just expanded it and expanded it until the physical universe existed. Right? That's, that is the Big Bang. I mean, science is just using a different vocabulary to describe the same, the same thought. But what happened there was that science had to come to grips with the fact that there is a beginning. Remember, from the time of the Greeks, there was this idea, which is really a crazy idea. I mean, I'm not saying that in a, in a judgmental way, but I'm saying that just conceptually, it's a wild idea, that the universe always existed. I mean, it's actually, it, it, to, to my mind, it doesn't sound very intelligent. Because how can something have always existed? How, how is that possible? It's, and, and, and in fact, science itself is now saying, well, that's not the case. But you have to understand that that idea was in vogue even in science, in the realm of science, for thousands of years. So it's only very recently that science has accepted the fact of this idea of the Big Bang, right? Um, which was largely built on, by the way, the... the the, the work of uh, a scientist with the last name Penzias, who, who is a Jew, right? And, and once you have the concept of the beginning, then, wow, we're right, you know, you can't, you can't run away from God at that moment because who, cre- that mean, who, create, who created the beginning, <laughs> you know? Now, what's so interesting about... Um, Science and all the rest is that a lot of a lot of people will give you very amazing explanations um, to account for this, right? Like there's there are zillions and zillions of parallel universes, and then one of them is this one. Well, what what's interesting about that is, and they're all random. But one of them randomly happened like this. Well, but the odds are so against it. Yeah, but you have zillions and zillions of them. Okay, well, let's think about that for a moment. That means you now have to believe in unseen universes. (laughs) This is a big level of belief. You have to believe in unseen zillions of parallel universes. And then who created those? So what, what becomes sort of comical is that to avoid belief, meaning to say to avoid belief in a God who created the world, you now have to believe 
ever, ever more amounts of stuff to get out of believing. So here you're presenting yourself as someone who, through science and academia, has escaped the trap of belief. And how do you do it? By believing way more than the believer. It's incredible, meaning to say, not credible. <laughs> so, so anyway, believe it or not, we want to talk about Avraham and Sarah still. We're going we're gonna to get to that. But, but the point that I wanted to make, just very simply, um, was that many people will accept that there's a God who created the world. But then, because it just, it's very simple actually, it's very elegant to say that there was a creator. It's very elegant. You know, you don't have to go to all these kind of like wild kind of sci-fi type theories. You just say, okay, there was a creator who created the world. But then the next giant, 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 giant discussion becomes, is that God who created the world involved in the world still? And is that God who created the world involved in my life? And is that God who created the world involved in my life and actually guiding me and actually wants something from me? You see, because you can believe in God and then you can believe in none of those things that I just said. And in fact, there were those thinkers, again, like in the ancient world, who felt like it was actually disrespectful to God to say that he was involved in our lives. How so? Like, I would think that that would be the highest form of praise that he's involved in our lives. Because you would demean God to make God who's so mighty and so all-powerful involved in whether or not you find a parking space because you've got a dentist appointment? How dare you? How dare you lower God to that, to that place? Yet we say the opposite. We say that's an aspect of God's greatness, that he can have done such mighty things, and that, you know, is, Reb Shlomo would say all the time, why are you making God so small? Right? He would say it with a broken heart all the time. Why are you making God so small? Meaning to say, if you don't think that the God who created the entire universe and who keeps it going and who created us and who keeps us alive, if you don't think that he can also find us a parking space, then you have no concept of what his infinity is. So with that in mind, let me tell you those couple of stories that I wanted to tell you. Just, just to tell you that God's involved in our life. That's the only, that's the only point I was trying to make. So anyway, um, so we met this couple from Australia, very sweet couple, and they, they said that they, uh, in Sydney, in I guess the year 2000, the Olympics, the Summer Olympics were held in Sydney, I guess. So they went to this swimming event, and they had their tickets, and they go, and someone, there's a guy sitting in their seat. So they say, listen, you know, this is our seat. So he gets up and they, they put him in the row behind them. And they start talking. They see that all these people are coming to visit him. He seems like an important visit, per, person. So they start talking to him. You know what's going on. Turns out he's an Olympic swimming coach. Uh-huh. Right? And then they start talking some more with him. And, and they, 
they say, hey, can you get us some tickets for some of their events, <laughs> right? So he says, okay, so he gives them their number. He marries their daughter. <laughs> so, and can you imagine he's sitting in their seat, in the, not next to them, like, you know, that's just God being wonderful, right? Because God could have accomplished the exact same thing, putting them in the seat next to them, but in their seat, right? So, so that's story number one. Then they told this story. This happened, this was told to them by their friend who it happened to. Okay, so to me, that's a very good source. So, so this couple was in Israel, and they, they, they see this guy, younger than they are, and they walk up to him. The woman walks up to him and says, hello. And the guy just looks at her and walks away. And she's very hurt. She says to her husband, it's so rude. Why did he do that? Why did he ignore me in such a way like this? And he says, I don't know. You know? So now, uh, later on in their trip, they go to another event. That same guy is there. Which, if you think about it, why would that person who they just saw on the street be at this other event, right? If you, just, just to think about that for a moment. That in itself is interesting. And the woman is hurt from their last encounter. And she walks up to him again, and she says, I've known you your whole life. And I say hello to you. You don't say hello back to me? Right? Michael? Right? And he says, Michael? My name's not Michael. And she says, do you have a brother? He says, you know, when I was adopted, I heard something about that, but I don't know. Mm. She put him in touch with his twin brother <laughs> that, he, that, he, that he never met. Can you imagine? Wow. Can you imagine? Right? The way God runs the world? So, you know... One of the things that, you know, I, I, I'm a writer, or I do writing anyway. I'm a Jew, but I'm a writer also. <laughs> I'm a Jew who writes. <laughs> so, you know, I take that seriously because um, it, they woke up Yonah on the boat during the storm. You know, when they're trying to figure out, the sailors are trying to figure out why is there this storm at sea? And they're, they're all going to die, basically. I mean, you remember, you know, if you were a sailor back in the day, that was a life and death kind of thing. That was a very, very dangerous profession. Um, and one of these crazy storms that just tore boats apart and killed everyone on board was going on. And they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on. They wake up Yonah. They see everyone's freaking out. Yonah's in the, in the bottom of the ship asleep during this. So they wake him up and they say, who are you? And he says, I'm a Jew. Now, can you imagine someone, if someone woke you up in the middle of the night, like with a start, you're fast asleep, and grabs you and shakes you and says, who are you? What would you answer? Like, how cool is it that Yonah said, I'm a Jew? Like, under those circumstances, right? Anyway, so, so as, as a writer, just analyzing that story that, that I just told you about, how they saw him in the street, and then they saw him at a second event, Right? I would have skipped the second event. You know what I mean? Like, if I'm writing that story, I would say they show it, see him in the street, and then he's rude, and then they, maybe he walks on, and then they catch up to him again. How could you? 
But the whole idea that they see him and then cut to later, there's a whole separate event and he's at that separate event. I wouldn't have told it that way. Do, do you hear? Like if you're at the movie theater, it's sort of like, you know what? That's slowing down the story. That's an unnecessary scene. But, but God didn't think so. God, that's how God wanted to tell the story. So, so the, the storytelling that we're used to, that, that seems very natural to us often, is the storytelling that we see in movies and television. It's, it's, it's a more usually homogenized type of storytelling, which somehow often irons out the wrinkles of real life. Like, for instance, you know, imagine you've got a date, right? It's sort of an exciting date. You know, who knows? Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one I'm going to marry. I don't know. So in the movies, the, the, the person will be, you know, either putting on his tie or the woman will be, you know, just checking her makeup in the mirror and then you'll cut and they'll be at the dinner table in their order, right? But what about, you know, waiting for the elevator and trying to get a cab, right? If it's in New York, that can be like a very lengthy process or waiting for the subway, right? Or losing the address and thinking going to the wrong restaurant and then you're at the right restaurant, right? All that stuff gets edited out. Right? But that's, that's real-life storytelling. That's the way it actually happens in real life. So when you see like oddities in the stories, the way the Torah tells stories, sometimes we go, oh, that's not really how it would happen. But the truth is, that is really how it would happen. It's just not how it would happen in the movie version. But in the real-life version, the weird turns and the seemingly unnecessary stops along the way that you would edit out if it were a story are all actually included because that's really how life unfolds. <clears throat> you know, a lot of times, and this is something that all professional writers um, deal with, especially movie writers, TV writers, which is that they have a real-life story, and then they don't write it that way for the screen or for, for, for television because no one would believe it. You know? It, it's strange, but this is, this is true, and it happens all the time. You say, this is too weird. Like, it won't play on television because it's too unbelievable. And why is that? Because people's notions of what's believable has been completely taken over by the storytelling methods that they see on TV and the movies. So, so I saw a headline in, in the cover of the LA Times, maybe, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, some university down south, I think it was actually a Christian university, did some computer modeling. And they found that if you took the Red Sea and if you did a breeze at a certain, a wind at a certain velocity over a certain period of time, it would split the sea. Like they, 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 they showed it in computer modeling that, that, that this was accurate. And that's exactly what it says in the Torah, that God sent this wind over the course of the night and it split the sea. Okay, did God need the wind? God didn't need the wind. God could have done it in a, in a moment, but this is how he wanted it to do it, okay? So in other words, there, there are, um, there was some academic, like, I don't know, 
I don't know, decades ago, who said, oh, right around the time that the Red Sea split, there was this big earthquake in Greece. And that's what must have caused it, right? So, so that's his storytelling. He wants to make a cause and effect between those two things. But, and, and, and that allows certain people to believe. Okay, now I can believe, because this guy says there was an earthquake over there. That, that I can understand. But you know something? It can also happen just as exactly the way it says in the Torah it happened. <laughs> and if it seems, if it seems to stretch your imagination, well, everything stretches your imagination if you think about it. How can actually anything occur at any moment? Right? See, I once read this line. It was, um, um, it was by Milan Kundera, who's a, a Czech writer, a great, great fiction writer. And, and this had an impact on me as I was sort of becoming more observant. He said, reality depends upon continuity. So what does that mean? Reality depends upon continuity. That means we think what's real is just based on what we see all the time. But there are exceptions and gaps in terms of what happens, quote unquote, all the time, all of the time. Right? All of the time. So we should just open up our minds to the idea of miracles. We should open up our minds to the true way events unfold. And it will expand our consciousness and it will make us greater believers because we'll realize that these things which seem very messy and irregular actually are very much part of the order of reality and of our lives and of history. Okay. So, so now let's, let's formally discuss Avraham and Sarah. And believe it or not, we've been on the subject about them that, I, that I've been wanting to discuss. Because Avraham and Sarah are this amazing couple, this amazing, 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 amazing couple who are flesh and blood, they're real people, and yet they have these miraculous elements to their lives which absolutely defy science, defy logic, defy our normal, regular experience, and yet these things happened. Rabbi Moshe Shapiro Shlita brings, a, uh, brings an interesting example of this. Whether you know it or not, um, tribes, if that's the right word, tribes back in the day, back in the time of Abraham and Sarah, had their own currency. There was economics and there was finance, and they would mint their own currency. And Abraham was important enough in the world that his tribe... His house, right, also had currency. And it was known as the most trusted currency in the entire world. Because when he said that this was, you know, whatever it was, a, 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 an ounce of gold, right, to make up a number, whatever it is, it, it really was an ounce of gold. So people really liked his currency because he was trustworthy. Um, so people would put pictures on the coins like they do today. That's, that's, an, that's an ancient thing. So what, what picture did he have on his currency? Wouldn't you like to know? So on the one side, he had a young couple, right? So that's the young Avraham and Sarah. And on the other side of the coin, he had the old couple, 
which was, again, Avram and Sarah, but older. Right? So you would say, okay, so very nice. So here's a picture of the young Avram and Sarah, and here's a picture of the old Avram and Sarah. But that's not the story that Avraham was trying to get across with this currency. It's that first you begin with the old Avraham and Sarah, and then the old Avraham and Sarah become the young childbearing Avraham and Sarah. That this was the miraculous quality of their lives. That at the age of 90, Sarah gives birth, and at the age of 100, Avraham gives birth. So they go from an old couple to a young couple. That's the story of the coin. So so let's talk about the greatness of Abraham for a moment. Uh, we, we We read about the Akedah. And the Akedah is, of course, the binding of Isaac. And I, I'll quote uh, Rabbi Freeman. He, he spoke on this yesterday, and, and I want to add something to what he said, but I thought it was a, a very important point, and it's, it's a point that, that Reb Shlomo has made in the name of the Ishvitzer as well. Um, but he said it in a very practical way, I thought. So, you see, w- Abraham was... was was uh, the greatest practitioner of chesed, of kindness, basically ever. And this was his mita, this was his, his great attribute. And yet, if you see, many of his tests involve him having to do something which is the opposite of chesed. And the greatest example of that is the akeda itself, the binding of Isaac. Now, by the way, if you look at the words of the Torah, God never told him to kill his son Yitzchak. That's very important. Because if you think that God told him to kill Yitzchak, then you have to say, then God changed his mind. Okay? And God never, bless you, God never changes his mind. So you think, oh no, God never changes his mind, then I'm doomed, right? (laughs) No, but that's not it. The point is, is that God has a desire, and there are many, 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 many ways that his desire can come into fruition, right? Like, like we always say in the, in the cop shows, like we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. And a lot depends upon, or almost all of it depends on us and what level we bring ourselves to. And then that impacts how God directs our life and in terms of leading us to the ultimate goal. So, you know, I always think of like, you know, there are roads like here in Los Angeles like that go over the canyon, like Coldwater Drive or Laurel Canyon or something like that. And if you drive on any of these drives, you'll see that there's like dozens of, you can take a left turn up this side of the mountain or a right turn up that side of the mountain. And there's all these different paths, right? But there's also just the straight way across. And so the question is, how, how are we going to get there? Through what circumstances, through what trials and tribulations are we going to be led to the goal that we're seeking in our life, right? A lot of that has to do, or most of it has to do with us. 
to what extent are we going to essentially make God's will our will? So, so when we say God never changed his, changes his mind, it's that God has this initial plan, but it's fluid and it's based upon how we exercise our free choice. Okay? So, so it's important that God said, offer your son up on the altar and didn't say, kill your son. Right? Now, the nature of the test was that God understood that Abraham would misunderstand him because God knows everything. That's what the test was. So Abraham thought that's what God meant. But again, we're just making one simple point here, which is that God didn't change his mind. Right? Nonetheless, this was the test that he intended for Avram to have. Okay? So hopefully that was clear. Now, can you imagine Avraham is the, the, the greatest Baal Chesed, the greatest practitioner of kindness, and he's confronted with this challenge to, that he thinks to kill his son, who's this miracle baby, right? And we'll get more into that later. He's this total miracle baby. And who he's blessed who, and who he's told is going to be the one who continues the Jewish line. By the way, Rabbi Wolfson says in the name of the Zohar, what the real test of the Akedah was, was not whether he was willing to put up Yitzchak. That, they said, wasn't even a question. Isn't that interesting? Like, we think, oh my goodness, what a test. Would Avram actually sacrifice his son? Like, the real serious Torah authorities say, of course, whatever God wanted, that's what Avram was going to do. That wasn't even the test at all. So then what was the test? How could it be if he sacrifices Yitzchak that Yitzchak would be the progenitor of his line. In other words, how, how are the children going to come from Yitzchak if Yitzchak isn't alive anymore? Which means God has contradicted himself. And that was the test. How can God contradict himself? How can God make no sense? Can I follow a God who's contradicting himself and making no sense? That was the test. That's according to the Zohar. So now, let's get even deeper into it, at least on a psychological level. And this is really the point that I wanted to make. We're just introducing it now. And this is what Rabbi Freeman said. There, there, there are obviously thousands and thousands of commentaries on the Akeda, right? You can understand it from all different angles. But, but let's focus on this, because this... I think is a very um, crucial teaching for how we live our lives. And in terms of, especially if we want to be deep, really, like, really deep Jews, you know, deep people. You see, Abraham could have said, Abraham could have said, God, I'm the one who does kindness. Why are you asking me to do something like this? This isn't, this, no, this isn't what I do. This isn't me. And uh, a lot of us have certain images of ourselves. Remember, Abraham went around the world telling, and, and according to the Mi'iri, 
convincing most of the world to, to abandon the practice of sacrificing your children. Now, can you imagine, like, you know, like, even if you were a humble person, right? I imagine Abraham was extremely humble. Even if you were a humble person, you would probably have a sense of accomplishment that you traveled around the known world at that point telling people, don't sacrifice your children anymore, and that they listen to you, right? And now can you imagine after probably decades of doing that and actually changing the world, you're going to sacrifice your own child? Right? You, Like, what would you think of yourself at that moment? You would think that, am I really going to upend my whole life's work? Like, who I am is kind of based on this one thing, and now I'm not going to do this. Now I'm going to do the opposite of that thing. Like, it's, there's so many confounding aspects to it. Let me tell you something. You know, Reb Shlomo, I was walking with him one time. It was uh, on 79th Street. I can picture it in my mind as I'm saying it. It was on the corner of 79th and Broadway as we were walking up from his shul. And we passed a poor person. And uh, Reb Shlomo gave him money. And I didn't give him any money. Why? Because it was Erev Shabbos and I had already changed for Shabbos. I wasn't carrying money anymore. And Reb Shlomo turned to me and he said, you know, it says in the Gomorrah, you're not allowed to pass a poor person without giving them money. And you know, like when he said that to me, it got so much in my bones, you know? Like to receive, you see, you see, we have a principle in the Talmud that if you rebuke someone else in something that you yourself don't keep, in other words, let's say you don't keep Shabbos and you say to someone else, how can you not keep Shabbos? That person, it says, is not going to listen to you. Because if you yourself don't keep the thing that you're rebuking someone else about, it, it bounces off them. That's sort of like the, 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 the metaphysics of it, right? So, so when I heard that, I thought to myself, well, probably if that's true, the opposite of that is probably true. Meaning to say, if there's something that you keep amazingly well, and you say to someone else, you know, hopefully in a very nice way, why don't you keep that? Probably, whoa, probably gets into their bones unbelievably, right? So who was better to homeless people and poor people than Reb Shlomo? And when he turned to me and he said that, it's like, how can I pass, how can I pass a poor person and not give them money? So, by the way, if you don't have any money, you can smile at them. That's considered sadaka also. Or you can say something nice. Hi, have a great day. I'm so sorry I don't have any money on me, but, you know, whatever. That, that's also called tzedakah, just in case you don't have money on So, So many times I would pass someone who was so clear to me was like a, like a rip-roaring drug addict asking for money. And a lot of times I'd give them money because I'd be like, how can I walk by a, you know, it was so in my bones. How can I not? But I don't know, by the way, that Reb Shlomo necessarily, we'd have to ask him. I don't know, right? I don't know that he would have necessarily given that person money. Maybe he would have done sadaka by just talking to the person. 
Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? In other words, you, why hand a knife to someone who's going to use it to stab themselves? So, but for me then to start walking by people like that and not give them money, because over the years I had thought of myself as the one who would never not give money. See, we're still talking about Abraham here, right? But now I have to say to myself, wait a second, no, 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 that's, that's not the situation to do in this, that's not what God is asking me to do in this situation. God is asking me not to give money in this situation or to do the tzedakah in a different way in this situation. You see, Avraham Avinu, Avraham Avinu had to allow himself to be the person who would sacrifice his son because that was God's will. Even though he was the number one person who wouldn't lay a finger on his son and who preached against sacrificing your children all over the world. He had to allow himself in his mind to be someone other than who he had been thinking who he was up until that moment. You see, a lot of us are like no people. But then there are certain circumstances where we've got to become yes people. And a lot of us are yes people, but we've got to allow ourselves in certain circumstances to become no people. Because if we've got this ironclad idea of who we are, then, there, then we're not being who we need to be. Let me put it to you another way. Clear. Reb Shlomo said in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe that the deepest, 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 deepest prayer, basically, is for a person to ask God in each situation, God, what do you want from me this moment? See, because maybe you're a shy person, but maybe that moment requires for you to be a very outgoing person. Right? Maybe you're someone who would never walk up to a stranger and talk to them. But maybe that situation requires you to do that because that's what's being asked of you in that situation.